non-anesthesia nerds, I am so excited for this week's episode. Uh, Not only is this technician just a super badass, um, I have a personal connection because when I was a baby tech starting out, I attended a anesthesia boot camp that was being co-taught by Dr. Jamie Gaynor, a great anesthesiologist, and Kim Spelt, who was a BTS in anesthesia, and she not only showed me how to place my very first uh, hands-on arterial catheter, uh, but also she really, really inspired me to kind of go forward and go further with my career, and I was like, man, whatever you're doing, I want to do. It just seems super cool. (laughs) So give you a little bit of background on Kim, if you've been completely living under a rock and you don't have Facebook and you've never been to a conference. Uh, to hear about anesthesia before. Um, Kim Spelt is a CVT. She's also a VTS in anesthesia analgesia. She works out of Colorado Springs. She not only has um, worked at the veterinary teaching hospital, training students, interns, residents, etc. She became a veterinary technician specialist in 2004. Um, she's just such a badass. She decided to start her own business, Peak Veterinary Anesthesia Services, in 2013, where she goes all over providing really excellent anesthesia and pain management to all of the patients in Colorado that need it. She not only has lectured at national and local conferences, but she also has authored multiple articles, book chapters, blogs, etc., and has really worked to improve the anesthesia knowledge of all kinds of technicians and doctors out there to elevate the standard of care. So somebody we all can look up to in this field, just amazing, amazing. And, you know, she also is a gin fan. So for me, somebody who (laughs) loves anesthesia and also likes a really good gin and tonic, I mean... This is the best combination ever. So doesn't nerd, get better than that. Right? <laughs> Please welcome Kim Speltz to the podcast. Oh, Tasha, thank you so much. I feel myself sitting here in my office blushing uh, over your over your compliments. And I'm so honored to uh, to be part of your podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. So Kim, first off, what I want to talk about is something that I think is very interesting. Not only because it does seem like I just am going on a little uh, Kim Spelt journey myself. Uh, what? Kim's a BTS? I'll be a BTS. Kim's doing relief work? I'm going to do relief work. You know? So tell me about your career right now and tell me about your business and what you do um, and why it's so unique. Um, I mean, I already know why it's unique, but tell us about you, what you do, because I think it's really interesting when technicians step outside of the clinic and start to make careers outside of the clinic, because when we're in school, we're really taught that, you know, you become a veterinary technician and then you go and you work in an animal hospital and you're on the floor. And while that is great and I've spent many years on the floor, there are so many other opportunities for veterinary technicians and especially for veterinary technician specialists. So tell me what's working for you and what you're doing. Yeah, uh, uh, very great points. And I, you know, I was brought up in tech school with that with that same message. This is kind of the path that you go on. Um, I found myself when uh, Dr. Gaynor decided to close his anesthesia practice in Colorado Springs, um, kind of figuring out what I wanted to do next. And what kept me from uh, actually trying to find a job at an individual hospital is this idea that I, I wanted the freedom to travel around. And I felt like I could have a, a bigger influence on the standard of care in in veterinary medicine by kind of spreading myself around a little bit instead of focusing uh, just on one practice or, or one hospital. 
And the model has been uh, really, really well received. And so there are a lot of clinics uh, here in Colorado Springs and in the Denver metro area where where I will be called on occasionally to um, monitor cases. Uh, I go all over the place and do uh, staff training and staff by staff, I mean veterinarians and veterinary technicians. And so I feel like, you know, spreading my knowledge and spreading that that training to individual uh, technicians and veterinarians, then helps every subsequent patient that they anesthetize as well. Right. Uh, and so it's it's a valuable service because I think there, there are so many times that uh, <clears throat> that animals don't get the care that they need because the owner's really nervous about anesthesia, you know, maybe they've had a bad experience in the past, or more importantly, that the, the veterinarian and the veterinary uh, technicians uh, are uncomfortable uncomfortable managing this patient's level of anesthetic risk. Um, so what I do is I, I can provide a little added layer of comfort and safety by going in and helping out that veterinarian uh, in that hospital uh, manage a case um, that, you know, a 17-year-old cat with renal disease and HCM is like right up my alley where everybody else wants to wants to run away, run away, you know. So I, I feel like I can provide a service that will allow uh, um, animals to get the care that they need without necessarily having to be referred out to a university setting or, or to a specialty center setting, uh, although I do plenty of work at, at, at specialty centers as well. Um, and, and it's just, it's so rewarding to me and so interesting to me to get to, to travel around and, and uh, have influence and provide this level of care in different, uh, different practice settings and, and with different uh, veterinarians and technicians. Yeah, you make a good great point. I mean, that's kind of what I did as well. Um, if anybody has been, you know, hearing me on Facebook, or if you've listened to the podcast, you know that I had a pretty crazy job last year where I spent a lot of hours at work. Um, and I just had this like light bulb moment where I just wanted to have more flexibility in my schedule. I really didn't want to be in clinic 80 hours a week. And um, I kind of really enjoyed the traveling aspect. And going into practices and just talking about anesthesia. I mean, like, like you and I, like we love anesthesia, and I think that that's it's really cool when you can go in and help a practice become more confident in anesthesia, so they're not completely terrified. And so that 17-year-old cat with renal disease that really needs those dentistry extractions finally gets the care it needs. So I think absolutely, yeah, it's, a, absolutely. it's fantastic. Yeah, I love it. And it's a diversity thing too, right? I mean, sometimes we can encounter. Uh, a burnout where we're doing the same thing over and over and over again. And of course, when you, when you're highly specialized in what you do, uh, you, you know, and, and, and you're highly specialized because you love doing it, right? So it's not like, oh, I'm bored with doing anesthesia, but this way I get the diversity of doing the thing that I love and applying it to everything from ASA ones to ASA five E's. Uh, across the board. And, and so I'm not just working for a surgery practice and I'm not just working for an ER and I'm not just working in general practice. I'm, I'm working in all of the things. And so it keeps me fresh and it keeps me motivated and it keeps me from, uh, from, from getting bored, honestly. Oh yeah. 100%. I mean, I feel like I'm kind of ping ponging all over the place, which, you know, and some days when you're like, did I make a flight for that 
visit yet? Am I, where am I going tomorrow? Um, can get a little confusing, you know, definitely if you're going to do relief work, please invest in a, in a good, uh, calendar system (laughs) to make sure you know where you're going, what day. Um, but I am right there with you. I love the, the diversity of it. I like that one day a week I go, um, I'm actually one day a week at university of Pennsylvania. So I get to work with the new anesthesia residents and like, what are they learning that's new or what, you know, upcoming studies are they a part of that I can learn about and this like new yeah. fresh research. So it is really cool to, to do that and to go into different clinics. And, you know, certainly we as the VTSs and the specialists are educating, but every once in a while I'll pick up some tricks, you know, when I'm in clinic too, like, oh, that's the way you tape your catheter. Oh, you know, I haven't thought about that. So let me try right. that next time. So right. I think it's, you're constantly learning and it's really exciting. hundred percent. Totally agree. So to kind of like go with that theme, you're going into a bunch of different clinics. Um, you know, you as maybe not a complete outsider, you probably have some relationship with these clinics, but you don't work in these clinics full time. So I guess my question to you, because one thing that I have noticed or I've heard feedback wise from technicians around is that they will hear about a protocol or they'll hear about a technique and they want to try it out, but they're meaning resistance with their doctors. And I know that you and I have talked about the doctor and tech relationship and how important it is for us to be collaborative, et cetera. But as a person from the outside coming in and doing relief at these clinics, how do you, as kind of the technician expert, build those relationships with the doctors and the techs? And what advice do you have for technicians who maybe have a reluctant doctor or they haven't built that trust yet um, to get started with some more, you know, getting their feet wet more in anesthesia. Uh, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's, and it's a difficult one to answer. I think, uh, you know, trust goes both ways. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of individual variability in working relationships and clinic dynamics that affect the influence that technicians can have. I mean, my advice would be to continue to uh, gain knowledge, continue to be interested in new things. Uh, and and then it's, it's picking the right patients to, to try these things on and picking the right verbiage to communicate with the veterinarian. Right. And so <clears throat> it can, it can be in baby steps, like, Hey, I'd like to start implementing a low dose of dexmedetomidine with our with our pre-meds. You know, I went to this great pain management lecture uh, by by Tasha McNerney, and um, you know, she advocates really hard for the use of this. Would you care if we start trying it in, you know, maybe our younger, healthier patients, and just see what what we see with our patient population? And it's kind of starting to make inroads, and as those as those agreements are made by both the veterinarian and the technician and little incremental changes that the technician recommends are seen to have a positive effect, then that's going to build trust by the veterinarian. Right. Um, but it's also not, uh, you know, you don't go in and say, well, Tasha says I should use dexmedetomidine on everything. And so why aren't we doing that? And I really want to do this. And, uh, you know, kind of being aggressive and forceful, like that's not going to get anywhere either. Right. We have to understand veterinarians and technicians alike have to understand that this is a collaborative field, that, that we are so much more successful when we are working together than working uh 
I hesitate to use this word, but I, I can't come up with a better one, but kind of this hierarchical thing, right? Where the veterinarian is absolutely the boss and, and the veterinarian is the boss when it, when it comes to the, the medical responsibility and making the final decisions, right? But like any good team in any good industry, you, you seek input and feedback from everybody around you. Uh, and, and that's what makes a good team. And the, the more that veterinarians and technicians both can be open to that collaborative sense, then, then the better off the patients are going to be and the more changes that can get, uh, that can get made. One of the advantages that I have is, of course, I, I've got I've got the, the VTS credential, but I've also worked as a, a ner- as a veterinary technician anesthetist since 2000, since I was working at Colorado State University. So, so I've got 20 years of anesthesia experience under my belt, and uh, have influenced a lot of of veterinarians through their through their path at, at CSU, and influenced technicians through. Uh, lecturing and in-clinic training and things like that. So I've, I've had that 20 years to build that network. Um, and, and so I guess my overall advice would be to just keep learning, keep trying, and keep trying to make those those inroads, right? And not trying to do too much all at once, picking the right patient population to try things. Uh, and then what I really like to do is when I can go into a clinic which maybe is going to be more likely to, to kind of listen to my input and, and try new things. I can handhold practitioners through that, uh, you know, uh, handhold veterinarians and technicians both through trying new things. Um, and once they can kind of see that response uh, in, a, in a safe environment, then, then those technicians are, are continue to be empowered to try that same thing. Does that kind of make sense? Oh, um, yeah. You know, and that and that's the beauty of of being able to go to different practices instead of just influencing the the ten doctors in my hospital and the you know twenty or thirty technicians or or whatever it is. That's great, but if if we can all kind of start spreading these little gems and providing uh, you know an environment in which they can try these things out. Um, then, then we're all better off. And that's part of what I do when I do in-clinic training. If they uh, choose to do some hands-on stuff as well as didactic, then we can, we can try new protocols uh, and things like that. Yeah, but it can be yeah. frustrating. I mean, I totally get it too. Uh, and I've gotten that kind of feedback. Uh, and I think it's, I, I think also that technicians are sent to conferences uh, to provide continuing education, but the veterinarians aren't necessarily in the same classes. And so they don't hear the same messaging. And I think if we were able to come up with programs that are, you know, send, send a veterinary team to this. And, and uh, Dr. Gaynor and I did this with the, the boot camp of which you took part uh, all, all those many years ago, Tasha. Inaugural we're, we're class, so maybe. <laughs> Uh, but, but we, we tried to implement, you know, discounts if, if the, the doctor and the technician would, would attend together. So once everybody gets on the same page and hears the same information, that's when the influence can really, really get built. Oh, I agree. Um, you know, shameless plug for veterinary anesthesia nerds, but one of the biggest things for our, 
um, in-person symposium is that we do not have a doctor track and a technician track. It's one track, and the expectation is that doctors come to this conference, technicians come, and everybody collaborates. And when you go back home to your clinic, you have heard the same information. You're both excited to try this new protocol or something like that. Uh, But I agree with what you were saying before that, you know, as an anesthesia tech, obviously, I want to come in and be like, hey, you know, let's try this and do this and epidurals and this blocks and then here. Um, And, you know, if people aren't used to it, that can be a lot. So definitely you can't go in with full guns blazing. And if you come home from a conference, if you start out slow, I do think that is that is the key and kind of pick your patients, pick your your situations and then build that trust over time. Right. And even I, when I'm working with a veterinarian that I haven't worked with before, uh, you know, I work with plenty of veterinarians that we've we've had this relationship for years. I know what they like. They know what I like. You know, we we understand each other and we don't have to have a lot of back and forth about things unless something strays from, uh, you know, maybe it's something new that I've learned that I want to try or maybe it's, you know, the atypical patient or something else. Um, but every time I, I when I work with an, a newer veterinarian, I, I completely change my dialogue about uh, you know, in my clinical experience, I've seen this. These are the advantages and disadvantages of this. This is the advantages and disadvantages of this. This is what I would recommend. Are you okay with that? Uh, because again, ultimately, it's the the veterinarian's medical decision. Yep. I don't go in guns blazing, uh, as you mentioned, uh, saying, "Oh, we should this and this and this and this." Um, it, you know, everybody when they're trying something new, I don't care what you do for a living, whenever we try something new, it can be scary, it can be threatening, and and sometimes we just have to be eased into it. Yeah. I'm a, t- I'm a toe it. in the water first. I'm not a jumper in the pool. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I totally get that. Yeah, it depends. Sometimes I have a jumper in the pool, but, you know, anesthesia, I do usually tread lightly, right? Because it's still, I mean, even, you know, us doing anesthesia for so long, it's still nerve wracking and it's right. still a scary experience. So I totally get it. Kind of to switch gears a little bit because um, you're going into all of these clinics and you're seeing all this diversity in all kinds of different clinics. Have you noticed anything different? Uh, I'm sure you're going to say yes, because we all have. But uh, <laughs> as far as anesthesia and pain management goes, since COVID and curbside and the influx of uh, patients and and people into the vet clinics. Um, so have you noticed any trends anesthesia or pain management wise? Since yeah, that? you know, that's a, <clears throat> that's a great question. Really interesting question. You know, since COVID, uh, you know, my one little slice of, of the pie, you know, my little anesthesia service just exploded starting in, in 2020 with, with all of the business, uh, as happened all over, uh, all over veterinary practices, right? Um, and and so I kind of got caught up in in the whirlwind as well uh, of of overwork and stress and all of those things. But what I've seen a lot uh, that has happened is so many practices are are short staffed because people are out sick or people you know. Uh, left during COVID and didn't come back or for whatever reason, everybody's short staffed. Everybody's got, uh, you know, a mile long waiting list of people trying to get into the, to the clinic. And so everything now since COVID is just operating at such a high pace, like 
like client after client and patient after patient. And, and what I've seen us do in general is not be able to, to take a step back and, and think about how we're going to take the next steps, right? Instead, we're just thinking about what's the next thing. I just got to get this done because I got to get this done. And then I have to go take radiographs and then I have to do this and then I have to do that. And it's all just boom, 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 boom. And taking the time to think through, uh, you know, what would be an appropriate fear-free approach to this situation. Um, you know, the, the, the veterinarian said, give this. So I gave that. Um, but, but I know this patient needs more, but the veterinarian's in a room and we have to get this catheter in. And so there's a, there's, I think there's overall been, uh, a trend towards as technicians anyway, not providing as much advocacy for sedation and analgesic protocols, because we're so busy. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, we as technicians with the veterinarians that we work with our ships passing in the night, just uh, here's what's here, here's the patient history. And then the veterinarians handing over, uh, here's a diagnostic plan uh, for, you know, the last patient. And, and it's just, it's just so busy, right. And, and so Mm -hmm. we in the, you know, in the back of the clinic, when it takes three of us to place an IV catheter in something, when instead, uh, and, and we're muzzling it and it's stressed out and all of these things are happening, I, I have seen a lack of willingness to take the time to advocate for sedation and analgesia to make our lives better. Our lives better and the patient's lives better, right? Um, and again, it gets back to that, how do you communicate with your veterinarian? If you have a good working relationship and good communication with the veterinarian, uh you can go and say, this patient's really worked up, really stressed out. I know we don't know everything that's wrong with it, but can we do just a low dose of a sedative or, uh, um, you know, a sedative and an opioid, you know, something like that, uh, because this this patient is terrified, you know? Oh, 100%. Uh, um, yeah. I don't know if you've seen it. I think that a couple of times when I've done relief for clinics, I've been, and we're, every clinic is just inundated. There's so many patients to see and not enough staff. Um, but I think you're completely right. Uh, what I've encountered, and I don't know if you've seen this as well, is the kind of uh, certain things get like left out. Um, and for me, I don't know if people know I'm like kind of nuts about local blocks. And I was in a clinic uh, a couple months ago and they just said, I said, oh, I, I can get the stuff for a sacred coccygeal block for this blocked cat. And they were like, oh, we're not going to do it. We don't have time. We don't have time. We don't have time right. to do a sacred coccygeal block. I mean, right. that shit takes me 38 seconds. So we really, we don't have 38 right. seconds. It, like It takes even, 38 you know, seconds to do the coccygeal block. But if you don't do it, then it takes an extra 30 minutes to, to place the catheter. So, you know, it's, it's, right. it's not seeing the value and, and the, and the time saving ability that providing good analgesia and sedation does for our patients, you know? Right. So, Kim, as as technicians, like, what would your advice be uh, to advocate for those things? I, I think we just need to stop and take a deep breath and remember why we're doing what we're doing. And remember that our role is as patient advocate, right? Uh, yes, we do the treatments and we uh, do the diagnostics and things like that. And, and the veterinarian does all the veterinarian things. But we have to feel empowered to say, uh and, and, and it's not it's not, hey, we're struggling to put this to place this catheter. Can we give it something? But we can go and say, 
you know, every time we try to hold this dog for a catheter, he screams and he expresses his anal glands. And I think he's just terrified, uh, you know, being able to say why you want to give analgesic therapy or, or sedatives to a patient is key to getting that, that veterinarian on board instead of just saying, we're having a hard time doing it. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, it, you have to understand the behavioral implications of fear and pain in the clinic so that you can relay to the veterinarian what you're seeing specifically uh, from a behavior and or a medical standpoint uh, that warrants the use of, of drugs. And you can even say, can I give this, you know, can I give this dog a 0.1 mix per kg of hydromorphone uh, IM before we try this catheter or, you know, low dose dexmedetomony, you know, any of those things. Well, we have to be able to back it up with a reason that we want to do it. That is not just we're, we're struggling. Right. Yeah. And it's, the two go hand in hand for sure. But we need to take a breath and and remember that we are advocating for this patient. And there, there's no need that there, there's no reason why we shouldn't say, you know, this, this uh, big dog, little dog has been sitting in the kennel for uh, four hours now. We gave it some some pain meds when it got here. But, you know, it doesn't look like we're going to get to this procedure, uh, you know, for another couple of hours. Can I redose the pain medication? Um, because because we all get distracted, right? We all move on to something else and, and we forget about what's already in the wings and uh trying to take the time, even though we're busy, to, to slow down and remember who our patients are and uh, remember that their needs for, for analgesia, uh, especially analgesia, but sometimes sedation as well, is just good medicine, just good medicine for, for the patient. And uh, we have to be their voice because the veterinarians are going in and out of rooms and uh, talking to clients and and doing surgery and all of those things. And we are the ones that are the caretakers for those patients, whether it's an ICU setting or, uh, you know, a general treatment room setting. Um, we are the ones that have the most contact with that, with that patient. And we have to, we have to step up and, and be the voice. Oh, I mean, 100% I agree. And I do know that, you know, in some clinics that have had me there before, um, <laughs> Uh, I have I have been told that a couple of times I've I don't know if this is good or bad, but I've been told that I am sometimes a little intimidating with my. Uh, oh, my, uh, she only patient, how many times a day I get that term. Patient advocacy. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, I mean, that's kind of my job. So um, I think one because thing. The worst thing that can happen, Tasha, the worst thing that can happen is if you ask the veterinarian if you can do this thing and you provide good justification. The worst thing is the veterinarian says no. Right. And right. most veterinarians that I have come in contact with, if presented with the data, are, are more than willing to to approve, uh, approve those plans. Yes, I agree. You know, kind of like talking about covid and just us being so busy, et cetera. One of the things that I've noticed as I relief um, is that I think just this has gone for two years now, right? Some people are still yeah. curbside. We are just inundated. We're all exhausted. Um, we're all at some, maybe at some level of burnout. And one thing that I have noticed, maybe you have noticed too, is that I feel like maybe because we're on high alert and our emotions are, are running high and running hot, it seems like there has been, at least in the clinics that I have done some relief at, 
maybe a little bit more misinterpretation of animal behavior. And I see a lot of people labeling um, dogs or cats as bad or naughty or mm-hmm. angry or aggressive. Um, right. and we had a, a mastiff in not too long ago that was a known osteosarcoma. And I saw, you know, some texts you know, really struggling, the dog's growling, and they're struggling with it and trying to pull it out of the crate. And then I hear these comments like, oh, she's so bad. She's bad. Like, she's not bad. She's, she's afraid and she's in pain. And and this is what you're seeing. And I don't know uh, how to get everybody kind of back to wait, let's, you know, get out of our own emotions and our own everything we have going on and, and take a step back. I mean, have you been seeing that out your way as well? Oh, oh, totally, totally. And I think, uh, I think you nailed it when you talk about the the stress that that we're under. Um, Anytime we we are in a stressful state, we are react, we, we tend to react closer to our lizard brain than we do to our frontal cortex. Right. And, and, uh, it makes us hypersensitive to just the immediate what you're seeing without the ability to really interpret what's going on, right? Really interpret the root cause that that patient is is showing that kind of behavior. Same thing for the patients when they come into us and and clinics are really busy, clinics are really loud. Um, you know, maybe this pet has been injured, uh, severe trauma or or severe uh, illness. And they're stressed and they are also going to be operating out of their lizard brains, right? And and so when when those two come together, then then things don't get thought through. Uh, so perfect example of this, there was a, a little dog that I took care of um, a few weeks ago. Uh, he, he uh, little dachshund, he'd been uh, really torn up by a big dog. Uh, the owners, um, he had multiple bite wounds, uh, abdominal wall hernias that weren't external. So they, they were under the skin. There were no external wounds, but still he had the uh, body wall hernia. So uh, the owners were trying to come up with funds to, to do the appropriate treatment. Uh, this little dog was hospitalized and he was and he was placed on uh, good payments. He was on a fentanyl CRI, uh, lidocaine CRI. So he wasn't without analgesia, but he he bit a couple of people in ICU. It was all over his record that he was aggressive. There was a muzzle hanging on his cage. Uh, so when I uh, was asked to anesthetize him the following day, um, when the owners did find the money for surgery and that sort of thing, uh, you know, all I did was suggest to the veterinarian that uh, he get placed on a ketamine CRI. Um, and when I went in, uh, later to see him right before induction, uh, I was able to reach in the, the cage. I opened the cage door. Several people told me, Oh, be careful, be careful. He'll, he'll bite you. Uh, because he had the night before, right. Bitten a couple of people, you know, I just talked softly to him and he kind of eyeballed me. Uh, he'd been on his ketamine CRI for probably 30 to 60 minutes. I was able to reach in, touch his leg, disconnect his fluids, move everything without muzzling him, uh, without him even making a move towards me. Uh, and then, and then I gave him just a, a little tiny, like one microgram per kilogram IV dose of dexmedetomidine before we got him out of the kennel, uh, to, to induce him. And, uh, my, my helper, my assistant was able to, you know, wrap him up in a, in a blanket and scoop him out of the, out of his kennel. And he didn't even make a noise. 
you know, so he had spent however much time that he'd been in the hospital with this label of being aggressive and then nobody wanted to get near him when all he needed was a little bit better analgesia, right? But again, we, we are a busy practice. Uh, we've got, you know, 20 other patients that we're trying to take care of in the hospital and uh, nobody's stopping to think through uh, why this patient might be acting like that. Um, so, so again, it gets back to, we have to slow down and I don't mean in time, but we have to slow our we have to slow our overthinking heads down, or maybe they're not overthinking, they're overreacting, right? We have to slow that process down and, and get back to being rational medical professionals who are evaluating each individual patient that we come in contact with for uh, root causes of, of their behavioral exhibitions, um, uh, of course, medical responses to treatments, all of those things, instead of just going uh, a thousand miles a minute and just doing the next step, the next step, the next step, the next step. Right. Yeah. 100%. I totally agree. Um, which is definitely easier said than done. Like, you know, texts and doctors out there listening, like I get it. It's busy. You have to make all the phone calls and write all the notes and make sure you get the prescriptions in and do all this stuff. But I also think that this kind of builds on the thought of doctors and texts building that collaborative relationship and you know the doctors you know you don't have to be the only ones to do it all right right um you know really good technician utilization means that your technicians can be the ones doing the post-operative pain scores or making the sedative or behavioral modification suggestions and kind of working together as a team to get those things done so that we're not putting everything on the doctor, which is very stressful Absolutely. for the doctor, but then also right. very stressful for the technicians as well, because, you know, you have to wait for the doctor to be ready. You have to, you know, wait before you implement all these things. So I do think that slowing down is a little bit is the best way to go. Um, and then working together as a team, because right. I certainly think that we can we are all super stressed right now. Um, we're all doing the best that we can in this field and this field is, is hard and I think that we all got into it. You know, I know that some people are interested in ECC and some people are interested in dentistry and, you know, those people are strange, but (laughs) I always say that, you know, I I think that we all got into this field because we are pain management advocates. Like we all got into this because we want to alleviate pain and suffering in animals. And I think that if we, we take, take a note back take to that end, right? That yeah. Right. Both. Yeah. So I think that we all, um, that's our job to be advocates for our patients. And I think that you said it perfectly that we just need to slow down and look at our patients and advocate for them the best that we possibly can. Right. And, and to understand that, you know, s- slowing down for 30 seconds to, to reevaluate your approach does not mean we lose three hours at the end of the day. Right. And, and if we if we took the time, that extra 30 seconds to really think about what this patient is showing to us and making the appropriate decisions to uh, alleviate that thing, then that ends up saving us time in the long run. And it provides better medical care to our patients, right? Uh, you know, every every time that little dog 
was, you know, they tried to go in and get vitals on it and it bit somebody, you know, well, then then we lose that person for, you know, however much time it is to clean a superficial wound or maybe we lose a person to uh, have to go to the hospital. You know, that that doesn't save us in efficiency at all. Another example, you know, a stressed out hypertrophic cardiomyopathy cat um, Ooh, yeah. that, that, you know, the veterinarian may be reluctant to, uh, you know, uh, we were all taught, I was taught this in tech school. You were probably taught it. Veterinarians are taught it. No alpha two agonists in heart disease ever. Right. right. Uh, that, that's kind of the sweeping thing, you know? And, and so when I see these stressed out cats and I advocate for a low dose dexmedetomidine for sedation, I get a lot of pushback. But my, my, my card that I play when I do that is, you know, there's, there's data that shows that this is actually beneficial in this particular type of heart disease, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And on top of that, you know, it's absolutely not good for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, catecholamines and uh, tachycardia, you know, a, a stressed out HCM cat can potentially uh, drop dead from its catecholamine release. And yeah. And, tachycardia. So it's better to familiarize yourself with the latest research in in the use of sedatives and analgesics um, because nobody benefits from high cortisol levels. Right? Nobody benefits from adrenaline release. Uh, it, it's, it's just taking the proper medical approach instead of just basing things on always and never, right? We always do this or we never do this. Yeah, exactly. No, you make um, excellent points that no one benefits from that increase uh, stress hormones and adrenaline. Not the cat, mm-hmm. not you, not the doctor, not the client, nope. no one. So <laughs> nobody, nobody benefits. No. So, uh, yeah. So, so slowing down, I don't want, I don't mean to say like, oh, you know, everybody just needs to take a little bit longer. Like that's, that's not what I'm getting at. It's, it's refocusing our brains we are sentient beings. We have this high functioning executive brain, right? Where we can multitask and we can take in a lot of information and organize it. And I think we just get so caught up in the moment to moment stressful pace that we're at that that we forget that we can organize and categorize and we don't trust ourselves to do that anymore. We're just trying to get through our shift and go home and have a glass of wine and, you know, binge watch whatever the latest Netflix hit is. And, and, that's just what the chronic stress has been for the last two years. And, and I think we need to find ways to break out of that when we're in the situation for sure, but also bringing our teammates and our veterinarians and our, and our other technicians and, and the whole staff uh, along because we'll just get caught up in whatever, whatever the level of crazy is at the hospital, whatever day we go in. Uh, so I agree with you. It's it's hard. And I don't mean that, you know, appointments now need to take 30 minutes instead of 15. That That's not what I'm getting at. It's it's restructuring the way we think about and approach each patient who's put in front of us. And this is from a veterinarian standpoint, from a diagnostic standpoint, and it's from a technician standpoint of what are we going to advocate for? Right. And, and we're each of us, veterinarians and technicians are using our different skill sets to come at things in the same way with our different functions. Um, but we have to be able to not get caught up in, in just the moment to moment. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, man, thank you so much, Kim, for being on the podcast. I think if anything, hopefully everybody who's listening can go into work today, look at the patient in front of them, 
calmly approach it and then advocate the best you can for that patient. You know, you know, you are, you are their voice. So as, as cliche as that sounds, it's, so but it's true. true. It's true. It and Absolutely. you know, uh, busy veterinarians can't be uh, the caretakers. So we have to be busy, busy technicians that are the caretakers. So we, we have a huge responsibility to our patients um, to, to our, to our patients and to our team members to make sure we're providing uh, the best information that we can to the doctor, that we're advocating for our, our, our patient care, uh, that we're, we're keeping up on CE and we're following veterinary anesthesia nerds and, and uh, all of the things and all the information that's out there so that, so that we're better prepared to, to make those uh, recommendations and adv- uh, advocate for our patients. Oh, 100%. Kim, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Um, Listeners, if you guys are in the Colorado area and you want to know more about Kim and her relief anesthesia services or her teaching services, we will put a link to her website in the show notes. And as always, thanks so much for listening and being a part of the Anesthesia Nerds. Thank you so much, Asha. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, do go to our website. We're in the process of revamping it. Uh, so watch in the next, uh, hopefully in the next few weeks, we'll have a brand new website. And if anybody wants to move to Colorado and run anesthesia full time, uh, we're hiring. So you could put, you can put my email address in those show notes as well. Okay, great. You heard it here, you guys. I mean, Colorado Springs is gorgeous and you know, we just can confirm. Yeah. <laughs> Tasha, thank you so much for the invitation. I, I really do feel honored uh, and and uh, love having conversations with you, whether they're uh, whether they're online or in person. Although the in person is always better. It is. All right, <laughs> that's all for us. Thanks so much, nerds. See you next time.